Hello, and thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into anything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we are your hosts. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpon. You tricked me there, Adam, with that new intro. I didn't read that in the notes. I like it, though. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I was inspired to freshen up the copy a little bit of the, the boilerplate. Yeah, I think we've been using that same intro since like the third episode, so yeah, makes sense. 30 good um, runs of it. Yeah. And today we're on episode 36. And our small picture arc continues. And we're going to be talking about just a smidge of midges. Uh, the smidges of midges, the paleo midges, as we will hear. We took a little break there for a one episode diversion to welcome the new paleo grad students. But we're back with. The small picture and midges. And this is something I, I know the, uh, the least about of the indicators we've talked about in the small picture so far. So I'm going to be leaning on you, Adam. Well, lean away. Um, it is not Virtually. my bread and butter, but I've dabbled, I would say, in, in with the, the midges. So yeah, just a smidge of midges in my um, publication record. <laughs> um, but uh, for those that are not familiar with this group, um, we're talking largely when we're talking about midges as they're a broader group, we're talking about the paleo midges mostly, um, uh, which are the coronamids and the chaobrids. But I think before we get into them, um, we need to just first talk about what is a midge and then pick yep. out and pick on our two favorites, I guess, within the broader group. Right. That, that makes, that makes sense because it is not, uh, restricted only to those ones that, are useful or leave nice remains in the paleo record. They are an interesting group. The Wikipedia entries are a little bit more flushed out, which is nice, uh, but it's a little confusing. They are a polyphyletic group within the dipteran. Uh, so they're flies. They are all within the suborder Nematocera, which are kind of the long, thin flies as opposed to your kind of rounder, fatter house flies. So that includes <laughs> mosquito, mosquitoes, crane flies, and all the midges. Um, but not all midges are, so mosquitoes are not midges and crane flies are not midges. So it's this polyphyletic group, just a collection of basically non-mosquito nematocerin flies. Yeah, so... So it's not a simple thing to answer, but I guess uh, basically the midges are elong elongated flies that want nothing to do with the mosquitoes or the black flies. So basically the non-jerk nematocerans. Maybe, but but there are biting midges too, which makes it a little confusing. So the coronamids are the non-biting midges. They're they're cool. But uh, <laughs> the biting midges, which in Canada we call them noceums, maybe in parts of the, probably in parts of the United States too, they're called noceums. Other places they're commonly referred to as sand flies. They bite and they're annoying. The tiny little things that get in everywhere, they can go through the nets of uh, like many screens. So they're a problem. But there are lots of others. Uh, so many so, we're not going to list them all off. You can go to that wiki and read through. If you're interested in dipteran taxonomy, power to you. Uh, but from our perspective, for the interests of paleolimnology, we really are primarily interested in the Coronamidae and the Chaoberidae families uh, at the family level. Yeah. And um, 
it can be a little bit more complicated because you can sometimes do something with black fly head capsules uh, if you're interested in riverine environments. But that is a level of complexity and a little bit more fringe, I would say, compared to um, the study of chiabrids and chiabrids. Um, and so, you know, there's no need to lambast us with hate mail about how we've forgotten the, the simula day. Um, we know, but we're uh, um, they're be, they're beyond the scope of today's discussion. And they bite too, so sorry. Yeah, and they're jerks. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about the paleo midges in particular, um, as mentioned, they're insects and they have uh, aquatic larval stages. And in both cases, those larval stages are actually the vast bulk of the life cycle. Uh, the adults are very short-lived um, and especially among the chronomids are associated with like big emergences of mating swarms that only survive, survive for up to a few days, whereas the multiple instars of the larvae um, can, depending on the environment and latitude, uh, can span multiple years. So, like for like in cold environments, they can they can take uh, like two years um, to go from um, an infant to an adult. Yeah, pretty big difference from the diatoms and the clodocerans. And on both of those accounts, one we have uh, an organism that's spending time in the the air, the terrestrial uh, non-aquatic environment, even if it's a small part of that life cycle. Of course, there are non aquatic, you know, found in wet environments, but really this is a flying insect. And then also the the longevity of individuals uh, in different parts of their life cycle. So yeah, we've definitely moved up in the complexity in that case. Uh, in the complexity and also in the general size, we're dealing with bigger organisms now. Um, the, uh, you know, we're talking about an insect larva, definitely can identify them with the naked, uh, or at least see them with the naked eye. And we'll get into like the lab side of things in a little while. Um, but in terms of picking them out, we're now in the realm of dissecting scopes rather than compound scopes. Um, or just so much even like one of my favorite parts, sorry, is, uh, and I'm sure most paleo people who have taken a core have seen occasionally in the core, the coronamids, often the bright red ones, or, or maybe not, but the bright red ones just jump out and they're really quite easy just to take the little trowel and pull them out of the core and have a look at them on the tray. No idea what species they are, no idea what environments they indicate. That takes more sophisticated techniques, but easy to uh, kind of get in touch with a little bit. Yeah, and in terms of identifying them, there's a definite variety of taxa uh, among the chronomidae. Um, some of them are filter feeders, some of them are detritivores, there are some predatory uh, taxa. They're found on every single, each, or each continent. Um, so when we're talking about a wide taxonomic diversity across um, a whole bunch of different habitats. They're relatively short-lived um, and they have the head capsules are chitinized, so it's the same material that preserved among uh, the cladosum remains that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so they preserve well in sediments. So you mix all these things together, diversity, difference in habitats, re you know, relative short life, and preserve all in sediments. And boom, we're talking about a paleo indicator. Done. Again. 
You've got it. Yeah, exactly. Do you know uh, off the top of your head, um, like what, what are the predatory ones predators on? Because they're, they're larvae, right? So they're in the sediment or they're associated with the, the bottom of the, the lake environment when they're larvae. It's not like uh, the larvae of the dragonflies or some of those, those other insects that are moving around quite a bit more. I, I don't think of them as being particularly motile spatially. They can certainly move up and down in the sediments, but maybe I'm wrong. I just never really thought about it. I, no, I, yeah. there's some that are almost like um, uh, terrestrial. Uh, in, yeah. in, so, in some ways, so there's definitely some some mobility. Hmm. Um, in terms of exactly what they uh, prey on, probably um, other coronamids. I would. I would be that'd be my top, top yep. guess, but I don't really know. Mm-hmm. It's like a cool. level of the ecology that I. This is where I just go. Nah, I, I'm not sure. Same, but it's an interesting uh, interesting comparison. I like to compare the like the biology ecology of the different groups. Like it's. Interesting to think about. We use them in a very similar type of framework from a paleo indicator perspective, but they are such different biological uh, members of the the ecosystem. So we talked about coronamids there, yeah. And uh, are, does all that apply for the chaobrid? Uh Not quite. So the chaobrids, um, you some people may know them by a more common name as the phantom midge. Um, and the, they are... Largely, if not exclusively, predators. I'm not sure if there are any non-predatory taxa within the broader group. Definitely all the um, taxa that I'm familiar with in a paleolimnological sense are predatory. Um, and they are very scary looking things. It's one of those things where if you, you know, had a human-sized chaobrid, that would be, you know, a very it's, yes, it's horror movie material, all a very raptorial kind of looking face and um, huge jaws and they are effectively um, translucent in many ways and so they are uh, predators and they prey on things like clodocerans so they and they are um, planktonic so they're they're hunting in the open water as opposed to grubbing around in the sediments or anything like that yeah, there's some great videos that you see in people's research talks. And I'm sure they're on YouTube too of uh, laboratory experiments where they are being reared in the lab and fed cladocerins and them just the ability they have to manipulate to move them around because they're big, but they're not, you know, huge and not the size of fish. So they uh, have to sometimes, well, they're often preying on the smaller clodocerans, but they have to manipulate them in order to get them into their feeding assemblage or uh, feeding apparatus, rather. So, yeah, pretty cool to, to see because they're big enough that you can get video of them with a, a decent yeah. macro lens. Yeah, and definitely seen, you know, um, what am I thinking of? Like high frame rate video of like the pounce kind of thing mm-hmm. where they snap. And I guess this is one thing that we never really. I don't think we talked about it in the Clodosterin show, but you have the push-pull. So the um, if a particular Clodosterin, if they're heavily preyed upon by fish, you know the push then will be to get small. But if you get too small, all of a sudden the invertebrate predators like the chaobrids have an easier time handling mm-hmm. you. So there's this push. I, I think we did talk about that. In yeah, a little bit. Cascades. Yeah. And, the, and then maybe change their shape and do all these different things to account for those different uh, forcings. Yep. 
But when talking about the midges and paleo, um, we talked about that the parts that preserve um, are those that are heavily chitinized. And so for the chironomids, we're talking about their head capsules. For chiobrids, we're talking about their mandibles. And again, in terms of why chitin is a polysaccharide, we've talked about it on the show before, and just, you know, it's very resistant to decay and preserves well in sediments. Um, if you're doing a um, midge um, analysis, the isolation of the remains is a very similar procedure to the methods described last time for the clodosterans. Basically, you're just using more sediment because you're dealing with a bigger organism um, that are less numerous, um, and so you need to go through more sediment. So you're deflocculating your samples in potassium hydroxide, uh, running it through a sieve, um, usually about a 100 micrometer sieve, so again, bigger organisms, um, so a bigger mesh size than we talked about last time. And one thing that you will notice straight away um, is that compared to last time, we were actually focused on the clodosterins. In mo many coronab analyses, clodosterins are the junk that is in your way, obscuring <laughs> what you're actually looking for because through that mesh and the volume of sediment you're dealing with, you're going to often find lots and lots and lots of clodosterin remains obscuring your coronamid picking. How dare you, clodosterin? <laughs> and the big difference um, would be the picking. Um, so what is happening, unlike uh, diatoms, pollen, clodosterins, instead of like creating a slurry that you are, um, are applying to a slide and then scanning the slide and picking out what you're interested from the crap, um, when you're doing a chronomance, just because you're in some cases dealing with so much sediment, um, relatively speaking, what you will do is you will, on a dissecting scope, um, sit and pass through um, your samples, isolating just the head capsules that you're interested in and transferring them to a slide that you will eventually then do your IDs under a compound scope um, so that you have a slide of only like 50, 60 head capsules per slide. And that is all that there. So the actual slow work of isolating is completely separate from the identification stage. Yeah, it's, it's completely different in that. So it's almost hard to imagine from someone who worked entirely with diatoms that you actually touch the individual indicator species, not just one of them, but all of them. You have physically removed all of them. You could, you could pick clodosaurus shells for certain types of different analyses, but not you wouldn't do that for identification. Why would you? But in this case... You got to get them out, and you want them to be clean. And because they're big enough, this is—it's probably a, quite a trade-off in terms of effort versus uh, reward. And in this case, the the greater reward is having super clean, well, in completely clean slides, except for the head capsules or the mandibles, and uh, having them—you know—knowing how many of them are on there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the benefit is that you have slides that you can revisit because you know that there's only a set number of uh, head capsules on those slides. Um, the downside can be that the act of picking out the head capsules can be very, 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 very time consuming. And training someone to do so can also be quite difficult because, um, and as someone that has been both a trainee and a trainer, um, 
being the trainer, you know, it can be quite difficult as well because ideally um, they will be sifting through tray after tray of nothing interesting because uh, ideally the person you're training is able to identify, pull out everything that they need to do. And um, yeah, and then almost becomes gamified a little way. Or I remember doing that with students once upon a time is, you know, do you need me to check that tray? How much do you want to bet that I will not find any straight head <laughs> capsules in there? And uh, um, Just keep them on their yeah. toes. Yeah. 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 And well, there you go. Yeah. And there are some uh, complications in that head capsules can split in half. Um, but your general goal is to isolate and identify 50 to 100 individuals to quantify. Uh, the community present in a given sample, and there'll be a decent range in size um, between species. Um, but also one thing to keep in mind is that there's a range within an individual species just due to that multiple instar um, aspect of their life cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, another fair difference from the other zoological indicators is that because there are is four instars is the... The common number for, yeah, I don't know if yep. that's every taxon, but the vast that's, majority. Yep. Uh, there's going to be, obviously, they're going to grow. The bigger, the later instars are going to be larger. They're going to be easier to identify probably because features are larger or perhaps aren't even present on some of the earlier ones. Would you count all of, like, would you include any instar of the same species in the same count? Uh, I think, yes. Um, mm -hmm. I think there may be analyses where you would do a, a breakdown and and when you get into the smaller instars that might be a little bit more difficult in terms of the IDing of of them but i think in the work that i've done it's just been all the chronomids present yeah yeah no, and this there are you know when you start to talk about them there's actually quite a, a number of differences between chronomids and some of the other entirely aquatic uh, paleo indicators. And a, a big one is there's, there's not a lot of connection, or not a lot, in many cases, there's a, a poor or only tangential connection between the information on the larval form and the adult. It's not always clear which species of adults correspond to which larval individuals. Uh, which is is pretty interesting, and and there are others like that, like chrysophyte cysts, for example. It's not identified which chrysophyte cyst number is which species of of chrysophyte, but quite different than some of the others. Um, but I, I guess that kind of makes sense, right? Because if the adults only live for at most a couple of days, and rearing them. You can't just raise adults. They have to go through this long life cycle. You couldn't raise them in a laboratory, not an aquatic laboratory, in order to then figure out which species. And the uh, the larvae can have a very long duration. So there's a lot of time that would go into connecting those two. And really, from a paleo-environmental perspective, like what we're talking about, it's only really the larvae that matter because as we'll get to in, in just a minute or two, they can tell us all that we are interested in about the environmental changes that we might want to reconstruct that are unique or, or particularly well suited to using coronavirus. So it doesn't really matter what the adults look like or are called even. It's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, um, and and that general disconnect because um, you can have these huge swarms, which we'll be talking about later of the adults. Um, but it's very, <clears throat> excuse me, very much a stochastic event that will last for a couple of days, whereas the larval forms are a major part of aquatic ecosystems, and there is a lot of ecological interest um, in uh, in them for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of which is uh, we'll get to in a second uh, is that um, they can provide information on a habitat within the lake uh, in a paleo sense, basically the bottom, the deep dark waters, um, where there isn't a lot of other indicators that can provide you that information. Um, but yeah, so the larvae are better studied in terms of taxonomy. In some ways, I don't know how true that is, but it, maybe it's more fair to say that there's not much crossover, I guess, yeah, between yeah, interest exactly. in, in the adults and the larvae. Um, and you can find very detailed guides, very much dedicated to the larvae. Um, and I'm not sure if that is the case for the adults in the same way. Um, and among those larvae, uh, the ability to identify individual taxa varies a bit depending on the specific characteristics. Some can be identified down to a species level, others to the genus, sometimes only to the tribe. And sometimes that happens not because it is not known, but because we're dealing with larger organisms, important parts can basically break off in terms of um, being able to go another level further, the bit that you, a bit that might be key to making an identification might be missing from the specimen that you're looking at at a given time. And in some points, yeah. that can become quite frustrating. Um, and also the aspect of dealing with... Um, set samples in a Bogorov tray. Um, you know, if you're looking for your target sampling only like one individual short and you go, ah, oh, I don't want to cut this. And now sure, I got, got to do a whole other tray, but you would never be in a situation where you'd be making another slide to get one more diatom ever. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah, for sure. I know the thing that came to mind is there is that tribe is not a term that's used all that commonly in uh, like biological taxonomy. So some people may not be familiar with it. They may not remember that, but that a tribe sits between a genus and a family. So a tribe would be not distinct enough to be separate families, but also not the same genus kind of level. And they, okay. if you're well, identifying those- the family. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So it is groupings within the family. Exactly. Uh, and those are identified, if I recall, always with INI, like I-N-I, as the final yeah. part of the word. If you're like the Coronamidae, e, yeah, exactly, is the is the family separation. Tani Tarsini. Tani Tarsini, yeah. So anything that ends in I-N-I would be considered a, a tribe in, in biology. There we go. Okay. So once you've isolated your samples, what can they tell us? Well, with um, chronomids, um, unlike the clodosians that we talked about last time on in the previous episode on the small arc, we're back into the realm of transfer functions. Um, and the, the question of, and I guess we've glossed over the use of the K-arborids at the same time. Everything would have been the same. They're isolated in the same samples, a different piece remains. And they're a lot less taxonomically diverse too. Uh, diverse. Um, so in my the analysis I've worked with, they've been like lumped in as almost like a taxa. 
tacked on to a chronometer analysis. And in some ways, sure, yeah. trans- transfer functions as one more taxa that can add a little bit more uh, information on a particular habit, habitats. Yeah, like you can do the taxonomy, like you can learn the taxonomy of the Kobrids from more or less one publication, at least from a North American perspective. Uh, whereas the you know, the Coronamids are like any of the other taxo- tax groups that have very large taxonomic keys and all those different things associated with them. So yeah, the, it, we didn't forget them. They're just the same as everything above. And it's interesting that you would take a completely different group found in a totally different habitat, like a, a planktonic group, completely different biology, predatory and and added into the transfer function, but it, it can provide a little bit more information. It's interesting. Yeah, so it'd be the equivalent of like throwing some, I don't know, you wouldn't throw some clodocerins into your chronomid transfer function, but... Um, uh, well, there's no the, reason you couldn't, right? I mean, you could, in theory, but just, or, yeah. you could yeah. and like combine them, I guess. But I bet um, it's been done. I bet, yeah, probably. Um, but uh, the uh, transfer function for volume-weighted hypolimnetic oxygen uh, that I've worked with, that was developed by Roberto Quinlan, um, includes a number of chaobrids as a single taxa to give you some in, as an indicator of hypoxic. Like so, very low to no oxygen conditions in the bottom of the lake, and so not too much else can survive in that uh, level of a, that type of environment for very long. So, usually, if you have a lot of chaobrids, your those those samples are distinct and um, indicative of low oxygen conditions. Makes sense. So, what else can they do? We just heard hypolimnetic oxygen. Uh, volume weighted from the Quinlan work. Longtime listener Roberto Quinlan. Yeah. So that is my interest in, in these guys and what I've worked with the most, but I would not say it, it is close to the top interest in terms of transfer functions among the chronobids. Um, if you hit the literature, you're going to see a lot more stuff on things like paleo temperature, water depth. Uh, so water level changes through time, paleo salinity, um, and even uh, some stuff on productivity. Um, but um, it's my show, so I'm going to talk about oxygen more than it is probably warranted in a scale uh, discussion uh, like this. I don't know, maybe. Like, if you think about what you've just listed off, a lot of the other things we've talked about or will talk about can be used to indicate those things temperature maybe not i think temperature would be the the other thing that the coronamids are, are not unique in but are, are really good at and and diatoms you know we talk about temperature is not really something driving their changes so i don't think it's uh, incorrect to put a good focus on oxygen because it is really unique uh, to be able to reconstruct yeah and for those that are not super familiar with like why you'd want to reconstruct oxygen is just in terms of the general phenomenon and uh, nor temperate regions, I guess, of uh, the stratification of lakes. So um, during uh, the summer, the lakes stratify over time. We've talked about this in very 
limited ways in other shows. But basically, as the top warms up, it becomes warmer enough than the bottom waters that you get a density separation, so the bottom stays cold throughout the summer and can be a refuge for cold water taxa. But if you those bottom waters are not mixing with the top waters, um, which is the kind of key physical relationship that is going on. So that also means it is isolated from the atmosphere. So there's no oxygen replenishment over the summer. And so what you will have, depending on the morphology of the lake and the um, local temperatures, so like how quickly spring warmed up into summer to allow stratification to happen, how early stratification occurred, you can run into situations by late summer, um, the bottom waters can be depleted of oxygen. And this is particularly interesting in, in terms of climate change. So you'll have situations where a longer stratification period may be impacting the cold water fish habitat in the bottom of the lake. Because again, it, and it can, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say on a broader societal level, People generally don't care too much about the health of coronamids in their lakes, but they do care about the health of the fish in their lakes. They'd probably actually be okay with the coronamids going away. They uh, produce a bit of a mess in the in the spring and summer. But I was just going to add that it could also be compounded if uh, the lake is quite productive and there's a lot of uh, primary production going on. And then when those, those materials, algae or plants, die and make their way into the bottom waters, if there's a great deal of now respiration, uh, as that material is broken down by bacteria primarily, uh, it can increase the biological oxygen demand uh, to the point where all that oxygen gets used up and that contributes even more. So there's no recycling from the atmosphere, there's a great demand on the oxygen for a breakdown of plant matter and other other matter too, but primarily plants, all contributing to low or no oxygen conditions in the bottom waters. And outside of the actual transfer functions, just the broader ecological communities of chronomans can be used to infer long-term changes in the broader water quality in the lake. And we glossed over, I think we skipped it, um, that the carburids can be an indicator of the fish status of the lakes in some ways because um, there are certain there's one species in particular that um, doesn't do a daily migration um, through the day to stay in darkness basically um, and that means they're very vulnerable to fish predation so if you find lots of them in the lake through time that can be used to give you some indication that um, there, there is not much of a fish community in that lake historically there you go all right that's a lot of stuff I think it's time to take a break for an ad. Are you a linguistic purist convinced that either the US or UK spelling of paleolimnology is correct? I'm finding the sight of, or lack of, the second A offensive? If so, then Digraphix is for you. For a low monthly fee, this browser extension will easily convert all instances of paleolimnology to paleolimnology. Or vice versa. Making reading journal articles online much more pleasant. And remember, Digraphics is compatible with all major browsers. Why is this even a thing? I don't know. It's an enigma. An enigma? For more information, visit paleodigraphics.com to throw the A away. Or bring it back. Man, Adam, we could have actually used that plugin to correct our script. And maybe it would have also reminded us to, to say something. So... 
the reason that they're good indicators of oxygen conditions or can be good indicators is because they have hemoglobin, which could have been shown as hemoglobin in our script here, uh, which would allow them to tolerate low oxygen conditions because they have this oxygen binding molecule uh, in their cellular mechanism. Well, I was using it, so I, I just read it as hemoglobin. Oh, okay. So must, I see... It's only on your end. It's a plugin. It's not shared between us. That's good to know. I got to subscribe, uh, get onto that payment plan. So that is an important indicator, to, uh, important thing to make, to make note of. That's why. And that's why they get those red colors on some species that you may see in the sediments. Uh, when you've taken a sediment core, uh, they're called blood worms. Is that a, like a, it's not an actual taxonomic thing. It's a colloquial refer, it, reference. It's a colloquial thing. Um, we, you would definitely, um, for all the aquarium enthusiasts out there, I'm not sure what the, the actual term would be, um, but I definitely know back when I had uh, you know a fishbowl going to the pet store, you'd be buying bloodworms as uh, mm -hmm. an actual labeled thing, and right. uh, found out many years Which, later that those are chronomids. Yeah, because I think there's a group of polychaete worms that are also referred to as bloodworms. I don't know which you would end up purchasing but it is a, a term for them and they sure are red so i can see why yeah. they would be in the coronamids all right adam the time old question coronamids and chaobrids great paleo indicator or greatest paleo indicator so i think uh in this one um you know we've always like hedged our bets a little bit here and, and said is anyone qualified to answer that question um, chronomids are not my first love as a paleo indicator, so they would go into the great category for sure, yep. just simply based on the amount of my life I have spent picking them. Fair enough. That's a good answer. Very uh, balanced and fair answer. <laughs> good. Uh, yeah, there you go. They, they are interesting, though. I find them interesting. It's one of the ones that, uh, as I said, I've done very little work directly with like i've looked through a few bogger off chambers um with some students and then had some other people kind of help just out of curiosity but uh yeah it's it's a it's a useful one to have in the paleo tool bag if you're a, a faculty member it's a useful one to have students working on it to keep that sort of institutional knowledge because there is quite a bit of it that goes along like the skill of uh the skill of learning taxonomy is always a challenge especially for speciose groups like diatoms but the the physical work of identifying picking. and picking is is a big difference yeah i can see i, I can see this especially now um in going back after a year and a half and a lot of students have moved on i think a lot of labs might be scrambling a little bit on their loss of chronic institutional knowledge because it's one thing to drop the taxonomy book beside a new student but it's another one to say there's nobody left in the lab because they all graduated because um we've got no one with a really good mental search image of what a chronomid head capsule looks like in a slurry of other crap yeah so here are your forceps go <laughs> find your coronamids make sure <laughs> don't you break do those forceps they're super expensive <laughs> and make sure you do not miss any small ones otherwise your your uh, data will be crap yeah yeah exactly uh, have you found with students that it's one of those things that some people are really good at right away and others, it takes them a long time, like, uh, oh, absolutely. Like a lot There's of things. A, yeah. You know, I don't know how many 
students I would have trained um, in terms of definitely um, double digits, 10, somewhere between 10 and 20 individual students. I, I would say I would have been trained on it. And I would say there's been a couple that I don't think it's eyesight related, but just being able to see the shape and get a sense of it in 3D and various permutations that they're just good within a week, you know? Yep. And I think the general rule of thumb that was told to me a long time ago by Josh Kirk is to take about two weeks of like full-time training to uh, um, uh, get someone totally off on their own, ready to do chronomid sampling independently. Um, and I think if you're going to use that as an average for everybody, that'd be pretty optimistic. There are definitely people that can do that in two weeks, but there are definitely... Mm -hmm. In my experience, people that take a, a fair bit longer to not be missing the small ones. It's just the way yeah, it is. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, everyone's uh, eyes are different. Everyone's like and pattern I, recognition. I, I was definitely one of the slower ones, I, I think. Uh, um, if, yeah. if I look back, it took me a while to get it. For and sure. I was like, you said it would only take two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> was it Josh who showed you how to do it? I, um, it was um, a combination of uh, Josh and Katie Griffiths. Or the uh, my two chronomid sh shout mentors. out, shout out to Josh Kirk and Katie mm -hmm. Griffiths. Yeah. All right. What else do we want to say about these delicious little bugs? Um. Again, I I don't I don't think we can uh, overstate. I guess the particular interest of their use for reconstructing auction status of lakes. Um, and so that I think we've, you know, mentioned three or four times now, but it's like a hook and there's really no other paleo indicator in widespread usage that gives you um, information about the bottom of a lake and especially the bottom of an anoxic lake where um, there's no light, there's no oxygen, there's not a whole lot to eat other than like the uh, detritus and so larger organisms can't make it down there, nothing can photosynthesize, so it's definitely a... Um, uh, component or habitat within lakes that there's not a lot of information coming out of from a biological point of view. No. Um, and, I guess and limnologically, there, that's a pretty important transition. So knowing that is really important for understanding the ecosystem because so many things completely change when the oxygen status of the lake goes either direction. So an important one. And I guess another one, because we've... Um, mentioned like the big swarms that can happen but if you've not f seen them in person like i was not really aware until i moved to kingston i was not familiar with like the big chronomid swarms that you can get down by the shore of lake ontario mm -hmm. in like late april early may um and uh it can be pretty big even just you know um, oh yeah you'll find a lot of people actually refer them to them as mayflies, which I always thought was funny because they're totally, a totally different thing. Completely different, time, like nothing the, like them. Yeah, yeah, they're like a, a small fraction of the size, but just because of the time that they come out in. And I just remember um, uh, at the back door to the apartment building I used to live in, like you just get like this pile of like, oh, know, like yeah. a foot deep of uh, chronomid carcasses. Well, we just, live right across the street from the lake, like one street over. And thankfully, our balcony faced the other direction, so it didn't get like them coming right off the lake. But yeah, you would have to like you would have to vacuum them, not sweep them, because if you just swept them, it'd just be a, 
every just be everywhere underneath of the balconies. It was crazy. I there were regular periods every year when we would just not walk the dog down by the water because that was our usual route every day. Did it twice a day, and it was just a couple of weeks a year. We're like, now nah, I'm going up into the town. I'm not going down here anymore. And then building on that, I guess one other kind of like definitely not neat thing, but just I guess an urban myth, if you want to say it about Cronomans is, and we did a little digging about this and weren't able to verify it, but I have definitely seen in several talks over the years, mentions of like the Cronomid swarms being so thick that people and livestock have, a thick, have a, basically choked or asphyxiated because they got so full of Cronomids trying to breathe that they died and that is just horrific on so many levels <laughs> a terrible like, way to go I, if it's true and i and i hope it is not true um yeah. i hope it is not true but um you know we didn't it seems to be one of those things that i've just seen mentioned a couple times perpetuated by students and i don't know if it's actually been validated anywhere but my god um <sighs> those poor souls and if you do see like if you haven't seen these swarms it's not hard to find pictures of them there are some amazing pictures of particularly heavy locations like uh there's a lake in northern iceland it's called midge lake it's like lake myvatn i believe i'm sure i've pronounced it wrong but it is it is absolutely unbelievable to see it looks like uh, thunderstorms moving across the lake like if you take a picture of the landscape when the emergence are going on it looks like a thunderstorm but it's not it's bugs and and it shows how popular not popular how uh, widespread they are how numerous they are. If you Google Midge Lake, not without the Iceland part, you'll find Midge Lakes in a lot of places in the world. Many a different state in the United States have uh, have Midge Lakes in them, so they are out there. And I guess uh, semi related to that kind of same swarming. Um, and this is drawn to my attention a couple of years ago by Josh Kurek, who, again, I mentioned was my mentor in terms of um, chronomids, is uh, the impact of a chronomid swarm on a major league baseball game. Um, <laughs> and so if you want to look this up, you probably want to Google bug game or start, even in Wikipedia, I think there's a... Uh, a page called Bug Game, or it'll send you to the right place. But this happened in 2007. Uh, it was a um, the American League Division Series. So basically, for people not familiar with baseball, it's basically the playoffs of baseball. Um, and it was Game Two of a series between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees. So October 5th, 2007, and late in the game, um, a huge and it took place in Cleveland. And so the lake that they were swarming from was Lake Erie. And a huge swarm of chronomids basically descended on the field to the point that it disrupted the relief pitcher. And so in many ways, the swarming chronomids is believed to have cost the Yankees that game and perhaps even the whole series. Uh, far out. That's crazy. In October, a late, like a yeah. fall emergence. You yeah. wouldn't, you know, you, you associate them with the spring more often, but yeah. that's, that's just some species. Crazy. Yeah, I had not heard of this until it came up yeah. in our uh, in our preparation. And so, yeah, it's not too often you'll see like multiple headlines talking about a particular chronomid swarm. And uh, again, um, has, has to 
impacts something the masses care about. In this case, it's major league sports, and it's like yeah. we we could have had it if it weren't for those Nematasaran villains. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and Lake Erie has has some pretty significant uh, emergence events throughout the year because it being a big, that's one of the great lakes in the Laurentian system. And, uh, yeah, it's a big, shallow, uh, fairly nutrient rich ecosystem. So lots of potential there. I'm sure if that game had been played in May, it would have been, you know, much worse. Cool. There you go. So I think that's a pretty good intro to more than a smidge it is. of midges. I learned a few things. Yeah, there was a smidge of stuff there. All right. So I'll wrap it up there. Um, and once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or contact us through Twitter at coreideaspaleo, and there is only... One uh, A in Paleo on the Twitter account, regardless of your browser extensions. Regardless of your browser extensions. Oh no! Actually, no. It would screw it up. No, it would screw it up, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All of our past episodes and their corresponding show notes and blog posts can be found at our website, coreideas.hsiorski.ca. And if you're so inclined, give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Those five-star ratings would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care because we all have all that sweet sponsor money now. (laughs) We just do this for fun. (laughs) And that's it for now. But join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. 